Dr. Elizabeth Bonowitz received her PhD from MIT in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences in 2009. She then completed a postdoctoral fellowship at University of California, Berkeley from 2009 to 2013. She was an assistant and associate professor of psychology at Rutgers University, Newark from 2013 until 2020 when she moved to Harvard. Currently, Dr. Bonowitz is the David J. Vitale Associate Professor of Learning Sciences at Harvard University. Her work focuses on the basic science theories of learning with the broader goal of informing educational practice. Her research bridges two research tra traditions, excuse me, cognitive development and computational modeling. Specifically, Dr. Bonowitz's approach focuses on the structure of children's early beliefs, how evidence and prior beliefs interact to affect learning, the developmental processes that influence beliefs, and the role of social factors in learning. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Elizabeth Bonowitz. So I often find it's hard to figure out where to begin. And when I was looking at the Harvard website and your resume um, and the little blurbs about what you, what you study, uh, I thought it might be helpful for us to start from your switch from Rutgers to Harvard. So I'm curious what you were working on at Rutgers um, and what you think it was about what you were working on that opened up that opportunity for you at Harvard. That's a good question. Um, I actually would be curious to hear what Harvard says. Uh, <laughs> made that interesting. Um, but I will say my research program is pretty continuous. So um, all of the people who are working with me at Rutgers continue stayed with me and, and came with me to Harvard, which I was oh, really, cool. really fortunate to have. Um, but at Rutgers, um, uh, I was an assistant and then associate professor of psychology. And my primary area of study is how children learn. Um, and I study that from the perspective of psychology, so studying their behavior. I might give them um, storybooks or toys or um, other ways of sort of presenting them with information or data. And then I measure what they learn um, from their interactions in their world, uh, from the interactions with other people, um, and from their observations of other people. And that's a behavioral way that we measure learning in childhood. But I also do uh, something called computational modeling. Um, and that sounds a little daunting if, you, if you're not familiar with the fields of machine learning and computer science and statistics. Um, but the basic idea is that there's a lot of tools that have been developed across those areas to study um, how, how uh, information should lead to learning, how um, an optimal learner might update a set of representations or a set of understanding in the world, given some evidence um, that it's been presented. And so I use models that and, and ideas from those fields to say, well, can we help understand and describe what's happening inside the child's mind, what those learning mechanisms might look like by actually measuring the data, the input that we give children and measuring the output, how their, how their beliefs get revised through their behavior, through their explanations, um, and see whether or not children look like, um, whether or not we can use these kinds of models to help inform more precisely what we think that, that learning is, it looks like inside the mind. So that's what I what I do as a as a computational cognitive developmentalist. I study how children learn, and I use ideas from computer science and from psychology, and a little bit from philosophy and education and other areas that are sometimes called the cognitive sciences um, to study learning. 
And uh, about a couple years ago, Harvard had a job opening for a um, learning scientist position in the Graduate School of Education. Um, and I looked at the job and I thought, I thought to myself, this could be a really exciting opportunity where I can take the kind of basic science research, the basic science questions that I ask, and really start thinking about how they can be applied in more meaningful ways to education, to thinking about how does the basic science of how children learn help inform how we might design interventions in the classroom or how we might uh, talk to teachers about what we know about that sort of early childhood development and how it contributes to learning. And so I was really excited um, at the opportunity that this, this position uh, provided and I, I thought I'll go for it. So I applied for the job and um, I was very lucky. I had a, a really fun interview. I met with lots of really interesting people and um, and they offered me a position. So we, we decided to move up here. That's awesome. Sorry, I'm feverishly trying to take notes of strings that I'd like to pull on later. Um, okay. This might get a little nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and please don't be afraid if it does. Um, it, it, I really don't have a target with where we end up with this conversation. You said your team came with you from Rutgers to, to Harvard, and it sounded like at least your interests are balanced and I'd be interested how balanced between sort of this behavioral analyst side um, and this or just analyzing behavior and this sort of computational modeling. Who or what does your, is your team comprised of? Is it more one side or the other? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the goal is that we're all mutants that do both. Um, and the idea is that as, as scientists, um, what we want to do is develop theory about, you know, what is our high level theory or framework for describing and understanding and predicting and explaining behavior. And so to do that, what we need as a field is rigorous ways to be very precise about what our hypotheses are, what the predictions are, and what the computational modeling does for us is provide a language um, with which we can describe and write down our assumptions and be precise about them. And it allows us to basically formalize or be show a lot of rigor in our theorizing about what learning should look like, how it takes place, what are the mechanisms that support it. What that also does is it sets up experiments that, that we then be able to test our predictions um, through careful, careful design and careful study. So for example, in one of our studies, one of the kinds of questions that we've looked at is the idea that um, pedagogical questions, so that's a question asked by a knowledgeable person with the intention to teach, um, like someone who's knowledgeable saying, well, why, why is the sky blue? Um, a pedagogical question sort of plays a special role in for learning because it it signals to the learner that there's something interesting here, there's something important here, um, but we have a model of why that inference is warranted, a model of, of the fact the other person has to have knowledge of my beliefs and that the, the um, kinds of assumptions that we can draw from this constraint uh, can be more refined. Um, I don't wanna get into all the details of, of the model, but it provides certain predictions about why a pedagogical question might be different than say an information seeking question, which is 
a question asked by someone who's not knowledgeable, not with the intention to seek, but not with the intention to teach, but because they actually want to learn something. So for example, if a child came up and asked you, why is the sky blue? In both cases, it's the same question, um, but the intention behind them is very, very different. And that can have very different implications for the person who's overhearing the question or, or being directed the question, what inferences they can draw from it. So in one of my lines of research, for example, we're excited about this idea of pedagogical questions. And what the models have allowed us to do is to say, okay, one component of what goes into pedagogical questions is this idea of knowledgeability. The person asking the question has to know something about the content. At least the learner has to think that the person asking the question knows something. And so we can then design a very simple experiment where the person asking the question is either shown to be knowledgeable or not knowledgeable to the child. And then, the ch then we measure how the child responds to the question or how they learn from the question. And what we see is differences. So for example, when a knowledgeable person asks a follow-up question to a child, like, is that your final answer? the child will revise their response and say, oh, wait, no, maybe it's this thing over here. But if an ignorant person, so someone who, who doesn't know the answer and the child knows they don't know the answer says, is that your final answer? Then they're less likely to revise their response. Mm. That's a very simple version of, of this kind of test. But we also show, for example, when you ask a pedagogical child a question like, what do you think this button on this toy does? Those children will focus and discover and learn more about that button than mm. children who overhear exactly the same question from someone who's not knowledgeable. And in fact, the children who hear pedagogical questions will explore the toy quite variably as well. So it, it allows them to, to go ahead and learn and play more. So this is just one example of ways in which we can sort of use a modeling framework to say, okay, here's a component of the model that we think is relevant, that the learner is making inferences about the teacher's knowledge state or beliefs, that's going to shape how they respond, how they learn, how they update their own actions. Um, and then we test that empirically through, through different kinds of experiments or studies where we just manipulate that particular variable and see if it has an effect. And we can do that in lots and lots of ways across lots of lots of variables, across lots of lots of theories that we that we might have about learning. And I, I just wanted to give one particular example. Yeah, that, that's an awesome example. And now I'm now sort of spinning. This question of knowledgeability. Uh, I know you didn't want to get too into the to, into that model, but it is fascinating even just brushing up against it. That question of knowledgeability, how much of your work around that particular component has to deal with how we judge knowledgeability? How does a student perceive that or do we present it? I'm almost picturing like a Milgram, like, like if they have a white coat or if they don't have a white coat or if they're dressed like a teacher or not dressed like a teacher. That's a great question. So what are the components or the factors that that children and learners and other adults might use to to ascertain whether or not this person is yeah. knowledgeable? Or like um, tone would be a really interesting variable for me, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Actually, prosody is one of the things we've measured in the lab. So prosody is, as you probably know, but just for your listeners, I'll clarify. I don't know that word. <laughs> prosody prosody is like the tone, is the tone okay. or the, the way in which we... Um, speak or say something. So yeah. I might, you might say like, uh, you know, um, uh, can you tell me about knowledgeability? And I, I could say, can I tell you about knowledgeability? <laughs> or I might say, can I tell you about knowledgeability? You know, and you can have yeah. different ways of speaking, right? Which convey very different kinds of, of content. So prosody is one of, one of those keys that we've used to see whether or not learners can use the tone, the way in which 
the question is asked, the the volume, the speed, mm. the way your your pitch rises at the end of a statement versus falls, um, all of those kinds of cues um, to to ascertain whether or not this is a pedagogical question or an information seeking question. Mm. For example, so one of the things that we've done is measured speakers um, uh, in the lab and saying, okay, I want you to imagine that you're teaching someone, you know, the answer to this question. And we just say, speak this question. So they'll say, okay, why is the sky blue? Mm -hmm. And then we say, okay, now I want you to go through and imagine that you're asking this question that you don't know the answer. So, so the person will say, okay, why is the sky blue? Hmm. Right. It's, it's got a different kind of prosody. And then what we do is we take all those audio samples that people have recorded and devoid of any other information. We just have a new group of listeners listen to them and try to rate. Do I think this person is knowledgeable hmm. or not knowledgeable? Are they teaching me? Or are they asking me because they want to know? Hmm. And people are actually really, really good at using the tone, the way in which someone asks a question to be able to, to tell whether or not they're knowledgeable or not. Um, we've also measured just asking parents to ask questions to their children because they don't know the answer. We have the children read a little book ahead of time and the parents have to ask the kids, can you tell me? Um, or we have the parents read the book ahead of time so they know the answer and they're asking like a pedagogical question. And again, we can hear the differences even in natural speech that parents generate with children between generating these sort of pedagogical questions mm. versus information seeking questions. So, so your intuition or your question about, you know, and, and Oh, sorry. And children also listening to other adults, at least six and seven year old children can hear the difference and can accurately rate whether or not they think someone is knowledgeable or not. So devoid of any other kinds of cues, the kinds of cues that actually are quite often there in, in our daily experiences, such as just, is this person a teacher or not? Or what is the context of the thing they just said right before this? Or, you know, um, do I trust them because in the past they've been reliable source of information? All, there's all sorts of cues that we can use for making judgments about knowledgeability, but even devoid of all of that, we can use as as you brought up this tone, this kind of prosody to tell whether or not someone's knowledgeable and, and even young children are sensitive to that. So that was a great question, totally on topic and, and, <laughs> and something we have looked at. Wow, that's fascinating. So if I understand that correctly, when you operationalize that component within an experiment, you're, you are looking at, I actually don't know what a decibel is, but you're actually looking at the audio track, but it's the label that you ultimately use that is ascribed by the, the third party. Is that correct? Yeah. So all the third party listens to is just someone speaking. All you hear mm -hmm. is the voice saying yes. the question and, and they just make a judgment you know, do I think this person's knowledgeable or not? So it's just a very easy forced choice response, we would say. Yeah. They choose between two options. Um, as the On the analysis side, what we can look at are things like in the waveform, do we see differences on average between those things that people rate as being knowledgeable or teaching kinds of questions or on average or, or questions that are asked by um, someone who's not knowledgeable and asking to seek information. Um, and we have found some regularities in, in some of the informational content there. So for example, pedagogical questions tend to take longer. So you speak hmm. a little slower when you're asking a question for teaching. Yeah, so interesting. Um, you put emphasis in a slightly different part of the sentence. I believe pedagogical questions, you put emphasis, uh, you, you rise the pitch of your voice and mm. um, uh, sort of earlier in the question. Um, and you have higher um, uh, um, variability of pitch across the question. So for example, 
if I'm asking you to, to teach, like, um, I'll use the, why is the sky blue again? I might say, why is the sky blue? Right. I'm really exaggerating pitch there, but I can go really high and really low. Yeah. That was, that was for demonstration purposes. Only, sure. Right. Whereas if I'm asking as an adult, why is the sky blue? Right. The tone there is, is as an information seeking question, the tone there is much more in the same pitch, right? Why is this mm. guy, there's, there's, you know, maybe three or four notes of, of register change there. It's also faster, right? So there's all these kinds of cues that you hear. Decibel is just loudness. Um, and I forget actually, we, we, we matched, we, we made sure that the loudness was the same. I probably shouldn't have used that word, but, but that's just examples of the kinds of um, uh, information pieces we can pull out of the audio files. That's so interesting. Do you find yourself, uh, when you're outside of the lab, so to speak, do you find yourself labeling people's questions as information or pedagogical? <laughs> Thankfully not. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to start to, I think this conversation has made me start to wonder, actually. <laughs> this work is uh, being carried out by um, a postdoc of mine, Dr. Igor, Igor Beskanjev. Um, and we collaborated with our, our uh, collaborator and colleague in the uh, data science and math department, Pat Shafto. Igor is the one who's really done most of the work on parsing together all these audio clips and really mm -hmm. thinking about this question uh, deeply. Um, he's got a very interesting and deep research program beyond just this one piece, of course, but um, but I, I will have to ask him whether or not, as a result, he's out in the world constantly hearing people as pedagogical information. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you have these, you have this model, you have these different components. How do you then assign weight to the components? How do you decide which component lends itself to the most learning? I'm thinking, because you want to provide these theories, and, and I'll ask you later how prescriptive you, you get with those theories. Like, okay, we've identified this component to be a high leverage component, so we would recommend that teachers do this or do that or emphasize this or emphasize that. Um, trying to find my way back to my original question. So how do we how <laughs> how do, pick how do you we assign weight? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so the short report is that uh, we try to have zero free parameters, um, which mm -hmm. is a way of, of saying um, we don't assign weights. We let the the truth of the world dictate um, how the model works. But that was incredibly vague and abstract. So, let me give you a very <laughs> concrete example of the kinds of modeling and models that we use. So, one of the models that we use is uh, something called the Bayesian model. Um, a Bayesian model is simply a mathematical prescription for how a learner should update her beliefs as she encounters new data. So Bayes' rule is simply that the probability of some hypothesis given the data, so the probability that I hold some belief given observations that I've seen in the world, is equal to, and this is just a mathematical truth, you can, I can, you know, explain through probability theory why this is, why this is the case, but it's simply equal to the probability that I would have observed that data if that hypothesis was true, so we call that a likelihood, times my prior belief that that belief is right. And then we normalize that over, over a normalizing function, which is just the probability of the data, which um, you don't have to worry too much about. So the basic idea is that the learner comes into the world with a set of beliefs about the world. Some beliefs are more likely than others, but we don't necessarily know a priori what is the right or what is the truth of the world. And that's because noise the world is noisy and ambiguous. And our job as a learner is try to say, what do we think is the right explanation or the right causal structure that gave, gave rise to the data that I'm observing? I'm doing what, what I call a sort of reverse inductive inference. I have to say, 
I see that the light is turned on and I don't know if it's the light switch that caused it or it's some other button over here that caused it. Or I am trying to figure out how a block should balance and I don't know whether the right model of the world is that blocks balance at the geometric center or they balance at their center of mass. I can have lots of different hypotheses, right? So a learner comes into the world with these, uh, well, a learner comes into a learning problem sure. with, with these different beliefs. Yeah. Um, I'm careful not to suddenly make myself too nativist. Um, yes. <laughs> but a learner comes into a learning problem with the, with with these beliefs, right? And and they say, okay, well, now I've observed some data. What's what's the probability that I that I would have seen this data if this belief was right versus if this belief was right? Mm. And they simply update that prior distribution um, via that likelihood function, and that's what gives you the posterior that that final probability of hypothesis given the data. So that's just Bayes' rule. That's just a truth. That's just a mathematical prescription of how probability theory tells us you, you exchange these variables. The hardness or the interesting problem is what do we think children's beliefs are? How do we write out what we think their representations look like? How do we write out what we think that knowledge looks like? How do we use that representation to predict what the probability of the data is? How do we get numbers out of this kind of intuition where we're trying to characterize these different representations. Um, and so that's where <clears throat> that's where it really depends on the domain that we're modeling and the question of interest. But um, but what we try to do is we might say, measure children's beliefs, measure how much they believe this thing versus that thing before they start the study. We give them some prescribed set of data or evidence that we're controlling. And then we measure their beliefs at the end. And that allows us to say, okay, well, if they came in with these beliefs and they got this data, then if they were updating their beliefs in this uh, sort of rational Bayesian framework, then they should end up with beliefs that look like this. And so we can do studies that that do exactly that in different domains and, and allows us to try to understand uh, what the nature of children's representations um, look like and how they and how they update them over time. But it requires being very formal and specific about about um, what we think those representations look like at any given point. So you give them options as opposed to letting them articulate their beliefs, because I imagine that would get really messy, right? Yeah, so it depends on the measure, or the kinds of things that we're doing, um, giving them options like, you know, um, I might read them a storybook about bunny who has a stomach ache. And, um, and the question is, why does bunny have a tummy ache? Is it because bunny is worried or because bunny ate some cheese? right? Maybe Buddy is lactose intolerant. Um, and as it turns out, when kids are really little, actually, they don't believe in things like psychosomatic illness. So they say things oh. like being worried can't cause stomach aches. Sure. They have they have what we call domain boundaries. So psychological things can cause psychological effects hmm. and biological things like eating can cause biological effects like tummy aches. Um, physical things cause physical effects, um, but they don't like to have things cross domain boundaries. They're still learning about the ways in which these these boundaries break down. And so you can do things like give them a storybook where you learn about Bunny's adventures, right? On Monday, Bunny eats cheese and feels worried and has a stomach ache. And on Tuesday, Bunny eats a sandwich and is worried and has a stomach ache. And on Wednesday, Bunny eats a popsicle and is worried and has a stomach ache. And finally, on Sunday, Bunny eats... Um, um, and I'm running out of food, tofu, and sure. is worried and has a stomach ache, right? And you can ask kids, is it the worrying that's causing the stomach ache or is it the tofu in this case? 
Um, and, and so the data here is ambiguous. It could be the case that on Monday it was the cheese and on Tuesday it was the sandwich and on Wednesday it was the popsicle and on Sunday it was the tofu, right? Um, but it's statistically compelling. It's statistically likely that it was it was the worrying because that's a single cause. And so we can formalize these sort of models as causal models and look at the prior probabilities based on their prior beliefs at baseline and 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 look at how children adjust their beliefs after reading about a whole week of bunnies adventures <laughs> and start mm. choosing things like being worried as the stomach stomach ache. So that's one way in which we can use like forced choice responding to get at children's beliefs. Um, explanations are a little tricky um, because as, as you suspect, three, four, five-year-olds, <laughs> most adults actually um, aren't, <laughs> aren't necessarily good at self-reflecting and realizing um, why they came to the conclusion that they did. Um, there's there's a sort of mystery in developmental psychology about what we call sort of metacognitive skills versus versus more core implicit learning skills, and and it's the case that very young children are not always sort of aware of why they can get to where they get to, um, and they often mm -hmm. just explain things in terms of whatever the evidence is that's right in front of them without really being able to self-reflect on, on what they actually thought only moments ago. So one more example of, of this phenomenon is if you ask, say, a three-and-a-half-year-old, um, what do you think is inside this box? And you show them, say, a Band-Aid box that clearly looks like Band-Aids, and they say, oh, um, okay, well, let's let's look and see what's inside the box. And then you look inside the box and it's actually pencils inside. Um, but in between showing them that it's, it's, it's something surprising, the pencils inside versus the band-aids, in between that you have some task set up where you have the band-aid box over on the other side of the room and maybe, you know, rabbit gets a boo-boo and needs a band-aid. And, and you say, okay, can you, um, can you help rabbit out? They'll run over to the band-aid box. I'm putting band-aid in quotes here, right? Grab it and bring it over. And then we discover it has pencils inside, right? So you ask the children, well, what did you think was in the band-aid box a minute ago? And they'll say, I thought there was pencils in it. And you say, are you sure you thought there was pencils in it? Yeah, I've always known there was pencils in it, right? They don't understand that they had a false belief about what was inside the box. And then you ask them to explain, well, well a minute ago, you know, bunny, had a boo-boo on his arm and I asked you for help and you just went over to that box and grabbed the box for Bunny. Why did you do that if you thought mm. there was pencils inside of it? And I say, oh, I just thought the box looked nice or, you know, they come up with all sorts of different kinds of explanations. They they don't know. So explanations yeah. are a very noisy, uh, challenging thing um, to, to use with, with young children, but sometimes it, sometimes it provides some insight. So that's, that is something we sometimes measure. Um, mm. We measure other kinds of measures of learning. So for example, we can look at surprise via your pupil dilation response. So you can use pupillometry to measure how surprised you are. If you're if you're surprised, then you often have a aroused physiological state. So your pulse might speed up and your pupils might dilate. You can do things like measure brain responses. So you can use things like EEG, um, which measures the electrical signals inside the brain and different kinds of signals tell you um, about different kinds of um, either locations generally in the cortex that things are happening, but also sort of you can get error responses or you can get um, theta rhythms, which are slow, long range rhythms. 
that can be a measure of the kinds of um, expectations that children have. Because if you're expecting to get more information about the world, your theta rhythms will increase versus not. Um, there's where children are looking on a screen can tell you a lot about. So people use eye tracking to measure behavior and behavior responses. Um, choices, how long children choose to explore something or where they choose to go to grab something. All of these are kinds of measures that can tell you about what we've, you know, tell us something about what the children are thinking and learning and inferring. Um, and they're all used as kinds of measures in, in, in my lab and in other behavioral um, psychology labs. Wow. There's a we, lot there, right? <laughs> yeah, there really is. Well, it makes me think and wonder um, when you're trying to build a, a computational theory or theoretical framework, um, what is your instinct? Are you sort of like include as many variables as possible? Let's just get as much information as possible. Or do you have an impulse to want to streamline it? Um, I don't know if that's a silly question. I've never designed no, one not. of these, but I'm thinking, it's I'm just thinking there's so many questions. variables involved here. It's, it's one of the deepest questions of philosophy of science is oh, you're great. asking about sort of Occam's razor, the problem of, of explanatory depth or satisficing. So, so these are deep, hard, interesting questions about, you know, yeah. do I want, do I want my model, right, to, to be simple and elegant in a way that captures some general behavior or some general understanding of how the world works, mm. right? Or do I want my model to be fit perfectly to the data, but really, really include so many variables that it becomes hard to get make it be precise or makes it hard to sort of explain um, uh, or generalize to new instances or hard to use it as a simple explanatory concept. And there's a trade-off here between how, uh, how simplified we might want a, a concept to be and how... Um, uh, and how well it's likely to fit to the data, although there's 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 more complication mathematically and statistically in in that trade-off. So one example is, for example, the if if you're following sort of the rise of um, deep belief nets and really, really, really large language models like GPT three or these models you might have heard on, that are trained on, massively large data sets of images or language, depending on, on which bottom-up driven model device you're, you're looking at. These, these seem like they're really impressive models of, of the world because it looks like they're generating intelligent responses or, or thoughtful pictures. Um, but because they're trained on so much data and because they're fit to so much data, um, it, what what they're doing is they're not actually allowing us to understand anything about the principles underlying why they work. Um, and they're also not allowing us to explain or to, to predict totally new things. They don't generalize beyond the data sets of what they're trained. So they have billions of variables, right? Where variables are all the different little connectors, but to the extent that they're basically just trained to the data, and so any new data is close enough to it that it just sort of mimics it and generates something out. But it doesn't have any sort of explanatory depth from a from a psychological perspective. It doesn't allow us to really understand the principles under why these things work. And it also doesn't do deep conceptual causal representation stuff that we know people can do. So it doesn't actually have intelligence. Um, so those are mm -hmm. kinds of models that are that that have billions of parameters <laughs> and are not 
explanatory at all, and they require a lot of data to work. Um, but on the other side, if your model is too simple, um, then it may not it may not capture the sort of depth of individual variability or contextual variability or group variability that that we might want to study and understand as uh, teachers and psychologists um, that are important to us as as we're trying to design and understand why learning works for some learners sometimes, but not for all learners all the time. And so there's a balance here between both explaining phenomena in a way that allows us to have some sort of theoretical traction that generates new interesting experiments that allows us to feel like we've got a sense of understanding and also capturing some depth of, of variability and individual difference that we think is um, important if we want our models to, to extend to novel situations. So it's a hard question and, and a deep one in the field. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer. I tend to be on the simplified side okay. of things. I think it's more important that for my own work, for my own thinking, that our, our models um, uh, provide sort of core, simple, explanatory accounts of things, um, and that uh, and, and that's what we'll get the most um, uh, traction out of, explanatory traction out of. Mm. Um, but um, you know, there's lots of differences of opinions on that. Oh, I apologize in advance if this makes you repeat some of your last answer, but I'm curious when you talk to your team, are there heuristics or rules that you keep in mind uh, or maybe that you talk about as a, as a group when deciding what gets cut and what doesn't and, and how we sort of play that Occam's razor line? Yeah, I mean, I will say we're not generating new theories every day. Sure. <laughs> I think probably in my own line of research, I've probably had three or four broad sort of pivot points in terms of like taking it a high level framework explanatory stance about something mm. and and then having a line of research that flows out of that maybe a set of 15 or 20 studies um so it's not the case that for example i'd like meet with a first year graduate student and be like okay what level of model are we going to specify they'll come in and i'll say okay here's a framework we've been thinking about for for how learning works and we want to apply it in this specific case and what additional questions can we ask here what new hypotheses can we generate within this domain that we can test um and so so that's the sort of level of of conversation that that i we would typically have um, sort of with the trainee, the theory generation, the new concepts or approaches to science are things that that take five or 10 years of, of thought and development. Um, but even within, you know, an ex study or an experiment or a hypothesis, there's this question of like, how complicated do we want this study to be? How many variables in the children do we want to measure? And how many pieces do we want to manipulate at once? And the answer that I always give is, simplify, simplify, simplify as few as possible. Um, because if you've got too many variables moving at once in your study, you, you generate confounds without even realizing it. It becomes hard to interpret the data. It becomes hard to interpret the results. Um, and so for me and my lab, you know, my principle is if, if you can, if you can see the result, just looking at the graph, right. With a, with a, do a, a simple, like, binomial or chi-squared or t-test these are simple statistical tests that people might use but you should be able to just see the result looking at a graph um, for it to be a compelling paper um, it's when we have to get into nitty-gritties okay we're going to do these multi 
variable linear models across all these kinds of things and controlling for that and that that I start to start to worry that we're we're fooling ourselves into thinking that we understand something that we don't. Mm. But I, I might just not be clever enough to, <laughs> to to think about all the things at once. But in general, <laughs> I, I prefer towards simpler. Yeah, I, I doubt that last part. Um, I want to return to something you brought up very early on, and I'm sure we've been hitting at from different angles, but you haven't mentioned it explicitly since the beginning is this idea of optimal learner models. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess maybe... <laughs> Late, late in the conversation here, returning to a contextual or a contextualizing question. When you talk about computational modeling, you're thinking about the human brain almost as a computer or input versus output, like a computer. Is that correct? Yeah, I think about the mind, right, as a black box where exactly you have you have input coming in. And our job as psychologists is to try to understand what are the, first of all, what's the high level explanation of what we think the box is supposed to be doing, right? Mm. What's what's the explanation of the computation the box wants to perform? And at the next layer, we want to understand what are the algorithms or the processes that it might use to carry out that goal, that high level goal. And at the very bottom layer, we can ask questions like, well, how would that actually be implemented in the brain? Um, although I tend not to be a neuroscientist, so I, I don't often connect up um, that, that final two layers. Mm-hmm. So, so that's exactly right. What we're thinking about is trying to be precise about what we think are the, the actual algorithms or the rules or the heuristics that the, the processes that the mind is carrying out in order to, to perform that computation, which in the case of my work is learning updating your beliefs and revising your your beliefs about the world. Interesting. Feel free to answer this as high level as you want. I I understand that you could write a dissertation answering this question. Um, But if you could just provide like a brief overview, what were the theories of the black box, so to speak, before computational theories um, or computational language, before we were even afforded that language? Were there big buckets of the ways that we used to talk about what happens in that black box? There's certainly big transitions that have happened in the field of psychology. So, so for example, in the United States in the 1930s, 1940s, into the 1950s, there was a movement called behaviorism, um, which actually believed that we could use relatively simple input-output formulas to describe learning in terms of just, we're all learning what we'd say like associatively or operantly. So we've just like, we just, we go about the world as human beings and we get reinforced with some reinforcer. And as a result that causes behavior to change. And there was no interest in actually describing the process that was happening inside the mind. It was just were these reinforcement engines moving around in the world. And it it was in the 1950s and 1960s that the, the cognitive revolution sort of came to pass. Again, this is within the United States. I think there's many parts of Europe that that didn't quite get sucked into behaviorism the way that the states did, um, that started to say, wait, we need to understand more about um, 
about what we think is happening inside the mind. And that, and that started this idea that we could have this field called cognitive science that allowed us to think about literally the algorithms or the rules or the formulas for how the mind works. Um, but before that field of cognitive science and even within the field of behaviorism and before that time, William James and even in the 1900s, um, in the history of, of psychology science, you know, people were interested in measuring behavior and trying to be precise. So measuring, say, memory curves of how much content someone could hold and trying to explain that in terms of, say, a linear model. So saying there's this decay function that looks a little exponential in this space or falling off quickly here um, and tailing out and, and, and trying to precisely characterize, right, what, what mental abilities looked like. But those models tended not to be explanatory, they were descriptive, right? So they, they said, okay, we think the learning function looks like this, but we didn't have a theory about why the learning function might look like that, besides a relatively simple account. So, so I would say these sort of computational ideas have existed, you know, um, for you know a couple hundred years in psychology, but but the the kind of machine learning Bayesian perspective that that has that sort of came about more in the 1960s, 1970s, the analogy to computers with the advent of computers, right? That kind of concept came into to being, you know, maybe 60, 60 years ago or so. Um, so I don't know if that quite answers your question, but. but no, it does. It, it provides a, a, a step, I think, for this next question, which is, um, Obviously, computational modeling of the of the mind or that black box, as you put it, is a product of our moment in time where we have computers and we're thinking about how to build better computers. Do you ever think the same way that behaviorism didn't explain everything, the same way that the the other curves and twists and turns of theory that you were explained didn't didn't explain everything or might have been missing some things? Do you ever worry that the, the mind computer analogy might miss some things? Never. And I, and, and I swear no. that's not a. <laughs> I swear it's not a leading question. I'm not. I'm not like a super skeptic about that. But no, I just wonder not. about like. Ultimately, we're we're trying to use these like language, and it just seems so temporally confined to like our right. moment. So that's like saying, do we worry that that applying computational models or math to chemistry misses what chemical elements are? And it's 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 a little bit of a strange it's a little bit of a strange analogy. So it is true that sometimes we talk about the mind as a computer, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's also the fact that we can use computational tools to help us understand what the mind is doing, sure. right? And similarly, we could say, look, we can use computational tools to help us understand what we think, uh, you know, certain uh, chemical structures are likely to interact with each other or form under certain conditions, right? It's not the case that we, that, that those tools are themselves what we think the chemicals are, just the same way that we don't think the computational tools are necessarily exactly what the wetware of the brain is doing. Sure. Um, but they but they can they can inform our understanding of mm. of of the mind in similar ways so the there are as many analogies uh to to the learner or to the child as as there are um 
you know, I think scientists studying the mind, um, we often think about the child learner as a computational learner as a computer, but we also have the child as a scientist is a very famous analogy. Um, one of the colleagues that I work a lot with, Alison Gopnik, is one of the famous psychologists that has made, made that a prominent theory. Child as a hacker, um, mm. like a computer hacker is a sure. new one that's come out recently. Uh, that's an interesting Alden. one. Others have have pushed that kind of idea. Um, and, and so analogies and metaphors are useful because they allow you to think about new kinds of problems or new ways to approach the problem. Um, but it's certainly not the case that I intend to say the mind as a computer is correct and complete, rather that computational models are a tool to help us understand learning the same way that computational models are a tool that help us understand any other domain of science. Um, and it's just sort of a confusing fact that we also sometimes have an analogy to the mind being like a computer as well. And those are sort of, mm. those are just separate components. Um, I actually am a child as scientist uh, <laughs> proponent in terms of, of broader uh, analogy framework, uh, theory framework kinds of people. So um, mm. one of the things that the computational approach I think has failed to do in the last um, 15 or 20 years, since it really has a uh, it has generated an incredible amount of research, an incredible amount of new understanding of, of the science of learning. But one of the things I think it's failed to do is make connections to um, emotions and our and our sort of physiological states. And the fact that learners, um, you know, are are can be happy or sad or filled with awe um, or fearful or um, surprised and well, surprise may or may not be an emotion, depending on which emotion researcher you ask, but right, you can have these sort of physiological, <laughs> you can have, that's a whole nother thesis, you can yeah. have these <laughs> physiological states, right? And those interact with learning in really interesting and deep ways. And the current computational models currently that I know of, right, I'm, we're working on this a little bit in my lab, but currently don't take that into account as an example. Mm. So yes, there's absolutely the case that there's a lot that this kind of approach hasn't started to identify or try to take into account or use um, or explain. But I think that that doesn't, that's not a limitation. They're so flexible that we could design a model, a computer, you know, it's 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 a tool for science. It's like saying, is the scientific approach flawed? you know, because currently no scientist has studied X. Well, no, because we can still use it as a tool to study X. We just haven't done that yet. Mm. Um, so similarly, I think there's a way to think about modeling these kinds of components that we've typically overlooked in past work. So the answer to your question is yes and no. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yes, I don't think the mind is just a computer, but no, I do think computational approaches can can help us um, uh, can can be a tool for doing science and and thus are not limited in that respect. Hmm. Are you current? So interesting. So when you and I'm I'm very sorry. Are you? Uh, how are you on time? Yeah, I was just glancing. I maybe maybe five more minutes. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to cut it now. Whatever whatever works best for you. <laughs> I, that wasn't a good end closure question. I don't know if yeah, you want to. Well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I'm starting to get a little. Um. Well, yeah. Now the pressure's on. I got to come up with a good closer question. I don't know we if can, I have we one. We can do but... seven. We can do seven more minutes. You can do two more questions if you want. <laughs> okay. Um. I'm really curious, and I, and I understand that this might not be. I might be 
sort of revealing that I <laughs> I can't perf- perfectly picture what you're all the problems you're thinking about all the time. But the computer analogy is really interesting because there are moments where when we seem to be we the royal we seem to be developing computers, certainly not me. Um we're almost trying to make them so like you referenced that AI, there's like chatbots. They try to mirror people and then or minds. Um and then when we make or what I understand about computational models is they they almost tend to mirror computers. So I have this like question like I I wonder sometimes like who's mirroring what? When you think about the optimal learner, do you think about a like a computer? Um and obviously you sort of alluded to that well the that computer analogy doesn't take into account um doesn't take into account emotions but how do you arrive at, at like the optimal learner and do you do that does that require you to sort of say like yeah the optimal learner w- would be emotionless in moments <laughs> and sort of calculating like a computer yeah so i think i think a better way to think about the computational <laughs> modeling approach is to say, I as a psychologist could try to write down my theory of what I think learning looks like. And I as a psychologist might say, I think the way that people learn is that they come in with a set of beliefs and they encounter some new evidence and then they update their beliefs, right? And that provides a level of description that allows me to sort of test my prediction in the world, right? I could design an experiment that looks at their beliefs and I give them some new evidence and I see if they learn. Um, But what it does is by putting it into words in just human language words, right? Is it obscures some of the details of how that process might actually work, right? What What I haven't challenged myself to do is be really precise, quantitatively precise about what I think it should look like if a learner came in with a particular set of beliefs and saw a particular set of data and exactly how much learning I think should unfold as a result. And so what the computational models that I do um, allow us to do is provide quantitative predictions, find a way for us to be rigorous about what we think when we take our theories in words and just put them into math and say, here's here's the mathematical way of writing what we think this theory is. the problem is in specifying the models, that's where all the interesting details and all the interesting work gets done. Um, but I think that's a very different kind of way of thinking about it. There's a different approach than thinking about just, I'm gonna build a computer that's gonna that's sure. gonna do stuff, right? And so when I say computational modeling, what I'm saying is really what we're doing is we're being very, very careful about the way that we're writing down our theories of, of psychology. We're being We're trying to use math and and the rules that have, that we know from statistics and probability theory and from these other fields to 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 generate a specific set of rules and so bayes rule is just one example it's literally just a mathematical prescription for how these kinds of variables interact with each other and relate to each other so you can modify this over here and see how the variables over here and over here respond um I think that's that's probably the cleanest way to think about it. Sure. Um, and is is that's a little different than thinking about um you know building a whole AGI system, right? A, a mm. artificial general intelligence system. Um 
but now I've lost the thread a little bit of what the main question was because I wanted to make sure I clarified that one piece. No, that's okay. If you don't mind, I can try to close this out. Yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Question: Is there? I'm sort of mind blown by how multidisciplinary your um, thinking has to be and your research is. Um, is there a domain or an, an interest that you would be really curious about that you think would inform your work that you just haven't had a chance to pivot towards yet? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Yeah, so so the work right now that I do is psychology, computer science, philosophy, education, <laughs> neuroscience. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of sociology maybe in there. A little bit um, of linguistics, it sounded like. <laughs> I I am not a linguist. I was, <laughs> I, I know linguistics. Uh, I, I know people who study linguistics, and I can guarantee that I don't know anything about linguistics. Um, so so, I. Um, is there a domain that I wish I I could also delve into? You're saying, or yeah. that I know better. I mean, I wish I knew all of those domains better. Yeah. <laughs> um, the problem the problem with breadth is that uh, time is a scarce resource. And so depth is something, um, that is hard to accomplish if you also have breadth. And so I like to think of myself as someone who specializes in understanding how children learn and how, and how children learn in particular things like causal beliefs about the world, how they generate intuitive theories about how the world works. Um, and so I've tried to have depth in that area by bringing these fields together, um, but there's so much that I don't know about, you know, current cutting edge approaches in machine learning or computer ways in which we sample our beliefs following Markov chain, Monte Carlos, right, in a more optimal way or something. I mean, I have some of my work is informed by these things, but I'm not deeply a, a computer scientist that's mathematically proving new algorithms that are optimal. Um, there's so much I'd love to know more about how the brain works and the ways in which we send information in the different areas of the brain that specialize. I know a little bit because I've done some EEG studies, but I'm not a specialist in neuroscience. In fact, I did very poorly in my first neuroscience graduate class at MIT and almost had to retake it because I wasn't taking it seriously enough. And only later in my career have I realized this is an interesting and important area to study. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much more I want to learn, even within the fields of education and development, um, because there's so much I don't know that's out there, uh, including, you know, what are the things that teachers are seeing as as core questions or core problems um, that that the field of learning sciences could really help illuminate or speak to and that we could learn from talking to teachers. And so and so I think the areas that I'd want to study are the ones I'm already in and just want to get, get more depth because they're incredibly vast literatures and there's so much out there that I don't know. And so I'm just fascinated to keep reading and, and keep trying to, to discover um, those areas. That seems like a, like a prerequisite, like a necessary prerequisite for, for knowing as much as you know, is you had to feel like you didn't know a lot for a long time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well thank you so much i'm aware of the time um safe travels during the holidays and and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this thank you this was really fun thanks for your interest in in my work and in the field in general and uh good luck to you awesome talk to you soon thank you <laughs>